Emerging Voices Fellowship is a literary mentorship that provides new writers the tools to launch a professional writing career. Emerging Voices is the most amazing program that allows the writers to develop. It's the opportunity to have my work in the world, to get to the truth of my writing, to know that what I'm writing matters. First of all, let me just say welcome back to the Pen America Emerging Voices podcast. This is episode 12, and we are lucky enough to have Parnaz Farutan. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Okay. You can say it the way that I should say it, and I will say it that way going forward. I was going to ask you first, and I didn't. But we are in the time of, I just keep wanting to say the time of cholera. So we are, we are, it's, it's COVID-19 and, and we've just kind of gone on lockdown and we're talking about, um, you have daughters and you homeschool them. And we, you just said that your daughter is working on her, is this her first novel? This is her first novel. She's 10. Amazing. Yeah. She's tried her hand at short stories already, but, um, she wanted to write a dystopian novel about what happens when all the adults are dead from COVID-19. So... And what did she say they're going to do? Well, the kids are pretty feral. They're just running amok, except for this one group of wiser who are trying to figure out food and a better society. Have they always been into books? Like, do, do, are you raising writers? What's happening? Okay. I, I have always wanted to homeschool, but until the whole lockdown, no school, no art class, no nothing thing happened, right. they had teachers outside of mom. Okay. They're home. So I am the teacher and the cafeteria lady and the crossing guard, right. <laughs> the principal and the librarian, you know, like right. everything. Now, do you, are you a writer full-time? Do you have another gig? I was a writer full-time before COVID-19, yeah. And why do you say it like that? What do you think is going to happen? Well, the kids are home and I'm primary caretaker. And if I'm not there, I've created situations where they can study on their own they have independent reading they have their independent writing but there's actual things that they teach you for or i became a published writer i was an english teacher so i have some training in how to sort of do this okay i used to write curriculum so i know what to do it's just trying to persuade them that i'm also a teacher not just mom is really difficult right yeah my seven-year-old keeps telling me that her first grade teacher is much better well, let's hope you stay writer as your job. Thank so, you. Of course. So this is the first time that we're meeting. We have emailed a few times. And I want to know, so you have a book coming out. This is your second book. It's a memoir. You were a fellow in 2009. Yeah, I was pregnant with my first child in 2009 and going through a very difficult while I was also doing Emerging Voices. And it was the one saving grace it was having that community was amazing. Did you make it all the way through the fellowship? I made it all the way. Th- I made it all the way through the fellowship, but I had to miss a few meetings because I was in the emergency room on and off. So tell yeah. us about how. Like, I want to know about your life actually, and that's good because this book is a memoir. So, yeah. so talk about you know moving to Los Angeles, where you're from, how that happened, growing up. I was born in Tehran, Iran. Right before the revolution of 79, I was born in 76, so everybody knows exactly how old I am. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, then the Islamic theocracy took over, and then the war with Iran and Iraq began, and then there were bombings. You know, we would, like, run down to the basement and turn off all the lights in the apartment building, and everybody would just be quiet and huddle and 
cry and pray. Well, that was my early childhood. It was uh, war. So obviously we had to immigrate because it's not safe to raise children in places that are being bombed. So we immigrated. We wandered around Europe for a while, homeless, trying to get into the U.S. And we got to the U.S. It was 1984 when we arrived and Reagan was president and the hostage, hostage crisis was like fresh in everybody's mind. So an immigrant... Iranian family was not very welcome. Right. Nobody came to the door with pies, I'll tell you. Mm. <laughs> and uh, we moved to a small suburb of Los Angeles that's predominantly white, upper middle class. And so I was the sole ethnic child on the entire playground. We didn't have Latinos, there were no black kids, and there were certainly no immigrants. What was the neighborhood? Uh, Agora Hills. Okay. I didn't, I didn't speak English either, so this English is my second language. I, I realized very quickly that that was a handicap. Mm -hmm. So it became kind of a personal um, obsession to really master the language. And um, by fourth grade, I finally learned to read. And once I learned to read, that was it. I was gone. <laughs> it was, I read the first book I ever read. I found a copy of the diary of Anne Frank in the school library. Okay. I showed it to the librarian to check out. And she says, no, that's too hard for you. Uh, and the reason I, I picked it out is because if you look at my fourth grade picture, right next to Anne Frank's picture, it's uncanny. We look like we could have been close cousins, if not sisters. It was the first time I was seeing someone that looked like me anywhere. You know? I think that's like such a such an important part of emerging voices is this idea of like seeing ourselves reflected on the page and like by the writer. So that's so interesting that that really was taking place in your childhood. Absolutely. And now the books my children are reading, it, there's I mean, there's certainly still a lot of room for writers of color, but there's more voices out there and it's so much richer than the experience I had I mean up until through college I was still reading dead white men they've shaped me I mean they're they're wonderful but I wasn't seeing myself not just as a woman of color but even as a woman anywhere you know okay Emily Dickinson great you know and Toni Morrison God rest her soul in peace but where where in the canon did we fit anybody who wasn't a white man you know as an English teacher that was my one big battle in the staff room with the you know during department meetings was this like we need to get voices of color there was such a backlash I mean that it's almost like catcher in the rye is a bible and everybody has to read it you know catcher in the rye I mean enough you know? right yeah <laughs> yeah so, what's what is your degree in you went to college um I went to Berkeley and I I have a degree in literature not I'm not trained as a writer okay so I kind of figure that out on my own right yeah so, so tell us how you got to emerging voices how did you end up applying how'd you hear about it well I was writing my first novel which was actually literary fiction and I submitted a few pages oh how did I hear about it gosh I can't remember I must have uh, maybe through, you know, I don't remember how I heard about it, but when I heard about it, it was like, I, I need this. Mm -hmm. I really needed it, you know, because I mean, forget being a woman, forget being Iranian, just in general, uh, as a writer, you need something 
to say, yes, you are a writer, we accept you as that, and we are willing to nurture you, to give you some sort of a, a boost toward becoming what you envision yourself to be. And that, that, that was Emerging Voices gave me that. It was like a vote of confidence, like a yes, you do belong in this community. You do have what it takes to, to write and to share your voice. That's huge. I mean, so much of writing is rejection-based. Right. Like, all the time. You know, you have to have such a thick skin. And to get someone to say, you're good. Right. Me so much. You know, uh, Evie, was was that for me? Are you still in touch with your... Tell me who your mentor was. Tell me if you're in touch with any of your fellow fellows. Yeah, I'm so bad with names. I think it was something, gosh, I forget her name. She was a Japanese-American writer, and I can't remember her name. I'm sorry. I'm getting old. It's okay. We're uh, all old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I have not kept in touch with the other Evies, but I've been following them, you know, to see where they're at. One uh, one member of my cohort is a poet who's published Manaz. And I think she changed her name from when I, her last name from when I knew her. And surprisingly, after I had to go on bed rest and I left my my high school teaching job and out of nowhere, coincidentally, they hired her to take over my English teaching position. So we have this weird like path that's kind of, you know, parallel to each other through this universe. I mean, I, I'm always hoping to hear of them. I mean, that's the most that you want. But being a a mom and trying to balance, to juggle, it's not even a balancing act, it's literally like you're just juggling all the time, is so difficult that my life has been reduced to raising my children and writing. I do nothing else. Right. I, I think that's a, a characteristic of being a woman because if you want a career that you really want to pursue, you just have to strip everything away, you know, and, that, and those are, I thought, well, I can't continue teaching but there's because there's no way I can write and teach and be a mom, you know? So then I cut out teaching, but that's pretty akin to taking a vow of poverty. We're kind of dependent on my husband's salary and when I publish and how many books people buy. So please buy as many books as you can. Right, right. So so I read, I, I kind of, I prepared as much as I could, but I read your interview with The Sun and you said that you were actually working on the memoir when you were in Emerging Voices. Is that true? No, no, no. Okay. I was on the memoir in Emerging Voices. I was working on the book of literary fiction. Okay. I was working on the memoir in the middle of working on this book of historical fiction that I'm now in. Okay, got it. And I got to tell you, once you're published, it's not like um, an easy ride from there. Like, it's just as turbulent and there's just as many rejections. So this book, my memoir, is considered my sophomore book. And there is so much pressure around a sophomore book. Like, all of a sudden, everyone's waiting to see what you do. And probably writing a memoir was not the most business-savvy move on my behalf. Okay. <laughs> because I, I don't have a platform for nonfiction. And trying to pitch that to publishers was really hard. Okay. Fortunately, an amazing uh agent thank god but yeah nobody was interested coming with thousands and thousands of readers who knew my nonfiction writing but i had to write this book like going into it i knew that this is this shouldn't happen yeah on a business like like if i was a smart businesswoman 
I would have written a sequel to the first book in the same genre, with the same voice, about the same people, but I couldn't. Right. I didn't want to, right. you know? Well, talk, want... let's talk about Girl from the Garden um, and then go to Home as a Stranger. So, so the first novel... What is like, why is it such a huge transition for people to go from that novel to this memoir? Why do you think? Well, the first novel is, um, it was my first novel. I was actually learning to write as I was writing, you know, and I, I decided to write that because it was the story that the elders in my family told me as I was growing up. It, it felt like in order to earn my wings, in order to have permission to tell stories, I had to tell this story first. It's literary fiction. It takes place in like 1917 Iran. It's about these women and uh, around the issues of fertility and being able to bear a son to carry on the legacy of the men because really your only task was to bear sons. I mean, as a woman, you had no other purpose in life. <clears throat> so what happens when a young woman can't fulfill that duty? So that's that story. And that story was picked up by Echo Harper Collins, and you know it's it did well. I, I'm proud of where it went. the The audience for it surprisingly was older Jewish women. Like I kept getting massive invitations <laughs> to to uh, to readings to you know, Hadessa Brandeis Institute. They they were just drawn to it. Actually, older women in general were really into that book. And, and it was great, and it, it, it was lovely, but I, it came time to write my second book, and I was going to write a work of historical fiction. I was going to try a new genre, but I wasn't ready as a writer, as in I did not have the skills to begin that yet. I didn't have this, I just wasn't in the right place. And one day I stopped writing the same three pages that I had been writing for six months, and I... I, w I went to the beach and I started writing about this fisherman I met once upon a time. Uh, I'd gone back in my 20s to Iran uh, for the first time after we escaped. And I fell in love with a fisherman. <laughs> and I wrote that story, part of that story. And that's, you know, it's about, you know, when we're young, we're narrating this story that we want our lives to be, you know. And it's not to get all cliche, but it's... It's an, it's an open book, you know, mm. it's like a white page. Like you can have anything you want. Life can be anything you want it to be. And when I was 24, it was, and I was in Iran and I just left America. My father had just died from Lou Gehrig's disease. I just left a corporate job. I had debts. I had student loans. I had, you know, and it was so just blah. There was no life in it, you know? I was in traffic half my time, just driving to Hollywood to work at the firm I worked at. And I felt like I was dying. So I got up and went back to Iran and the world just blew open. And I had to write about that. I wanted to write about that. Plus I was turning 40 and I realized my 20s were over and I needed to write about this. Right. So about it, you know, about it's being young. It's so interesting because I write creative nonfiction and it's exactly the same age. My mom died. I was 24 and mm -hmm. I was living in Canada and I moved to LA and it was this very same thing. I felt like I was dying and it was like the world blows open and in a way that is like, it's the only way you can survive because if you're just doing the day to day, you, you're not going to make it. Yeah, so especially I, poetic soul. Yeah. Like, especially if you're a writer, you cannot be stuck yeah. in 
in the routine and the monotony of of daily existence. You can't, I mean, it's just, I don't know what to say. I do know what to say, actually. I think we live in a fantastic moment in time. It's terrifying and it's it's overwhelming, but it's precisely the right moment to be living in as a writer, you know? Why do you say that? I mean, look at it. Before the day-to-day was Monday and you did what you did on Monday and it was Tuesday and you did what you did on Tuesday and yeah. You know, before you knew it, it was like April, you know? But now everything's turned upside down. Right. We're living through such a fantastic moment. We're on the cusp of something monumental. If not, I guess we're not really on the cusp of it. We're like right in it, you know? We're in it. Right. You know, it's like, it's not even the Great Depression. Although imagine the Great Depression was fantastic in its immensity as well. Or World War II or... I don't know, the Black Plague, like these moments in time, Civil War, you know, name it. Well, also, I just read, you know, I know that 9-11, it plays a role in your story and like that time frame. And I just read today that like this is the the, we haven't seen repercussions or like a situation like this since 9-11. Do you do you see it that the way? Amanda, you tell me you you were around for 9-11 and so was I. Yes, the world took a shift. Yeah. Went from you know, la-di-da to fear and terror. And, and, and like, we started looking at, at the world with scrutiny, with distrust. But I think during 9-11, we were in the same exact place that we are now, in that we can either bunker down with fear and mistrust, or we can take the route we didn't take with 9-11, which is to sort of open our eyes to humanity and to fill ourselves up with compassion and to come together with solidarity. And you see that happening with this particular event, you know, COVID-19. I don't know if you've seen the videos, but the Italians singing to each other from their balconies. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is so much opportunity for a sort of spiritual blossoming right now. I mean, we, we can, we've seen the trajectory of where we've been going globally. The environment is dying, you know, people are desperate and drowning in, in open seas, trying to get away from murder and, and, and getting lost in deserts, trying to get away from poverty. And then there's other people who are like, well, you can't come here because this is ours. You know, like, it's just, it's just been ugly for a little while now. Mm. And here is this sort of like, wake up, this shaking of the soul that we're going through. It's time to listen, you know, and to be the beautiful thing you imagine yourself to be. And for us writers, it is a call to action, you know. We need to write right now. We need to to speak. We need to share. That's our role. I love I love the shaking of the soul. It's so so beautiful. I have actually two questions. So I wonder, you come from this very traumatic childhood where you're basically a toddler hiding in a basement from bombs. And then, you know, to come into a situation like, is this at all triggering for you? Um, how do you deal with that if so? I feel like as an immigrant, I'm kind of made for this. My husband more so. My husband lived through the the genocide in Kosovo during with the Serbian and Bosnian Herzegovina. Mm-hmm. So he actually seen this, the food shortages, the fear, the uh, isolation. Uh, I think the terror 
Well, I don't know. I, I guess people trying to kill you and a virus trying to kill you are pretty much the same thing. Something's trying to kill you. Something's yeah. trying to kill you, yeah. So he lived through that as a young adult. Um, he's he's seen it. He's he's known it. For me, I come. I, I experienced it up until the age of six, and then and then it was all Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers for several years. You know, okay. in in the U.S. But in in my understanding of reality, I've always known that things like this happen. So yes, I I'm actually it's funny you should ask this because now I'm beginning to understand the function of PTSD. <laughs> It serves a purpose. Yeah, uh, to have experienced that, to be on a sort of sort of high alert for disaster, you're ready for the next time, or you're prepared, or you're maybe you know how to function when things turn upside down like this. I totally agree. Yeah. So you're you have a book now, like like the world is shutting down every day. We wake up, you know, it's that's becoming more and more apparent or expansive. I don't know what the word is, but you have yeah. your book is coming out March twenty fourth. So is. so what does that mean for you? Well, um, usually when your book comes out, there's a book tour and there's festivals, and you're you're pretty much you become you change hats and you're a businesswoman now, and you're trying to get the word out there to say, hey, I wrote this, please read it. Otherwise, you are a tree falling in a forest and there is no one to hear it. That's what I am. I'm a big old rotting redwood log right now because there's, thanks to you, I mean, and thanks to the people listening, there's a few people hearing it, but like the audience that I'm supposed to reach, I'm not going to be able to reach. And I, I mean, there are obviously greater tragedies than this. There, I, I'm blessed for everything I have, but I, I spent time working on this and now I don't know where it's going to go, you know, and it's, yeah. it is, it's not like it's a hobby. I wish it was, you know, a hobby, but it, it does. I do try to sustain my family's financial security with my work. And like everyone else, now that financial security is kind of, uh, you know, shaken up. I, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, I think that too, um, I'm going to say this idea of like the arts is going to save us. Like if anything's going to save us, it's the arts. But also yeah. like we have to be realistic in that like everybody needs a place to sleep that's safe and they need food and they need clothing. And so even I think this morning or in the last couple of days, Amazon has deprioritized the delivery of books uh -huh. um, for essential items. So, so I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the fact that like you, you are writing, like I say marginalized because I just mean like, we're not those old white men, um, yeah. you know, and, and, um, you're already writing from a place where, where you're struggling for your piece of the pie or like to be seen in this landscape that's like flooded with material. So like, can you talk a little bit about that? Like how it is to get it, how easy or difficult or what you have to do to kind of like get attention already in the marketplace? Yeah. Well, previous to all, all of this, we had uh, that whole American dirt fiasco. Yes, we did. Where, yes, we did. <laughs> where, you know, I, I forget her name. Um, but she was imagining or romanticizing. I mean, there's plenty of criticism, so I'm not going to go there. That's fine. An experience. And there there was a hungry market for that experience. But that market only validated or seems to validate a particular voice to narrate that experience. I had to struggle to find a publisher interested in this book, even though my first book was critically claimed. 
even though I'm an established writer and it's not my first book. Like it was hard finding a publisher willing to say, yes, this story matters. Let's so what talk. were you, what were they telling you? Like, what were the no's? Like, why? Oh, she doesn't have a platform, you know, as in I don't have a built-in audience for my nonfiction. And yes, it's beautiful, but... I mean, there was a lot of yes, it's beautiful, but... There's rejection after rejection after rejection. And, you know, finally it got picked up. And, and I'm, I'm grateful, but... Again, I don't know how to get it out there at this point. I don't engage in, in social media. I have, I have my own personal reasons for that. You know, uh, and I'll tell you because your, your listeners, I think, are predominantly writers. So the reason I don't is because I have just this much. I'm holding up my fingers because you guys can't see me. <laughs> very little bit of um, mental clarity left after everything else I need to do. And I, I very jealously guard the purity of that, like that space in my mind. I cannot, I cannot pollute it with so much because there's so much, you know, with all the, look, all, all social media, you know, it is, it is a form of expression. It would be another, uh, another medium for writing, you know, like Twitter is a medium. It is, you know, especially for us writers, we don't take anything lightly. If we put words down, we mean them. But if I were to engage in that, then I would not be able to write a book because that would be my medium, mm. not not paper, not bound book. So I can't, I, I can't do it. So I can't do it. Well, that's every publicist and marketer's nightmare because they want you to do that stuff. They need you to do that stuff. So then it becomes a choice between do I give up that little bit of space and creativity that I reserve for my writing so that I can sell this book or do I protect it because the writing in and of itself is more important. The ability to, to write from a place that is um, silent and connected, you know, yeah. I choose. Silent and connected. I have to. I uh, I just saw Joy Harjo um, speak in Orange County, and she basically made the comparison for um, processed food, like 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 social media is like processed stories, and it doesn't feed our soul. And if you don't allow yourself to get quiet, you never get to the the true nourishment of of like feeding your soul. So I totally understand that. Absolutely. And so not to, not to harp on the, the, the benefits of what we're going through with COVID-19, but I think what we're going through with this particular disaster forces us to kind of slow down and take stock of everything. The other day, uh, the kids were going stir crazy and we went for a hike close to our home. And, you know, there was a, it was rainy, uh, you know, and, we were out there and all of a sudden a hawk flies out of a tree chased by a crow. It was magnificent. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized that's what we, that's what I need. I mean, everyone's obviously nourishes their soul differently, but I need hawks and I need crows and I need rain, you know? Yeah. I, and I think it's um, now that I'm forced to be at home and, you know, pay attention to things more than I, I normally would. 
I think that's that's a gift for writers, you know. It's so interesting that you bring that up because the episode prior to this one was with Rocio Carlos, and she's a poet, and she talks so much about like connecting to nature, and she, um, we did actually talk specifically about hawks and crows. Oh, that's um, so funny. Yeah, because I, you know, she has this thing where she likes to take attendance of things and she likes to be in nature and she likes to give things proper names. It's never just a bird. It's like the kind of bird. And yeah. I just thought that was like so beautiful. And I wonder, you know, I'm fed so much as a writer through my through my network of emerging voices, which like are people that I would never have met if I hadn't you know, come through the fellowship and hadn't, you know, taken this job. I feel so blessed. And I wonder if you're not on social media, do you have those really tight writer relationships? Like who's reading your work? Who's feeding you in that way? I, by somehow, I don't know how it happened, but I'm a bit of a hermit now. I have writer friends who are, who are very dear, but they're so busy with teaching and with writing and their own juggling of everything. I am I'm, I'm a recluse. I swear. Right. <laughs> you know, that I I've distilled life down to two things: to my children and to my writing. And unfortunately, and I I really believe it's just the society that we live in. As a woman, I don't have the privilege of just giving my all to my work. Right. You. Um, a few years ago, I did the LA Book Festival and. I showed up, I'm not going to name names, but there was a famous male writer, nonfiction, and he was holding court. You know, there's there's a green room where you all, all the authors go and they sit before they're called to their presentation. And it was in the green room. It was like the best experience of my life. I was like, I have arrived. Yeah, I was, but he was sitting there holding court, had three kids, and his wife was taking care of the kids, like literally chasing them around, making sure they're fed, making sure they're okay. While he, while he sat there, regal, speaking, happy, allowed to be as creative as he wanted. I had to struggle to find childcare, to watch the children. I had to dash down to Los Angeles just for that brief period of my reading so I could dash back to my kids because, you know, they'd set the house on fire if I was gone too long. You know, like, it's... It's just, it's not fair. Yeah. It's not, I knew uh, when I was writing my first book, I had the honor of knowing Gloria Steinem for a while. Um, we, we spent some time at Hedgebrook, which is a fantastic opportunity for women writers. And when I got pregnant, I told her I'm pregnant. And she said to me, she said, you know, this world is hard for women. You can't give birth to yourself and give birth to a child. Mm. Like you can't do both and I have been like struggling for 10 years to do both right you know to raise these children to nurture them and then to nurture and evolve you know the writer in me and it's it's hard man (laughs) it's hard do you have I totally agree like honestly like I told you I have never wanted kids and you know part of that was because I struggled to take care of myself and I think like I can't imagine being responsible for someone else I would lose myself I'm I'm not capable you know like you said you have to you have to decide like these are the things that I'm going to do and these are the things I have to give up and I just knew that I wasn't capable of that 
But can you, do you have any advice for women who have kids who are in a similar situation? Like, how are you making it work? You're making it work. You have, you're working on your third book. Your second book comes out next week. So how are you doing it? Well, I, when the kids started going to school, the minute I would drop them off, the minute I dropped them off, I was in my office. It didn't matter if I had writer's block or I was in a bad mood or I had a migraine. I was writing. I was writing until it was time to pick them up. No negotiations, because at the end of the day, this is my dream, and I do not want to lay on my deathbed and think to myself, I wasted it. Right. So I would do that. Now there is no school. They are home. How am I writing? I'm not. And I got to tell you, and you know what I'm talking about, and so do these lovely listeners. If I don't write, I become a monster. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) If I don't get it out of me, it builds up and I am anxious. I am angry. I have no patience. I'm like, I'm a mess. I'm a complete mess. Like it's almost, I don't know, like a, you got to have an outlet for it because these voices are in your head. These stories are in you. And if you don't let them out, I swear to God, you go crazy. You know? And I think Jung talked about that. He, he, He has an essay about the very fine line between psychotic and artistic, you know? And I think the psychopath or the, I don't think he calls them psychopaths. I forget Jung's terminology for someone who's not balanced, but he says the person, the neurotic, or is that Freud? Anyways, the person who cannot, who cannot express themselves through their art ultimately like goes mad. I totally agree with that. Yeah, me too. So how, like how you're talking about, you know, like how does this book, how does this memoir feel different than the last, than the novel? Like, how does it feel for you? How different did it feel writing it? And how does it feel sending it out into the world? Yeah, the, the book, I was so conscious of every word. There is not a word in there that is ill put in the first novel. I was so, because I was learning and because I had this idea of what a writer's voice must be, I mean, again, I was trained by a dead white man. I would spend days, days on a single sentence with the etching it out of granite, you know, until I knew it was perfect. It's hard writing like that. The novel was a all out moment of liberation because I wrote it in my own voice in my voice, in a voice that didn't care if Faulkner would have approved. Right. Faulkner would not approve of this novel. <laughs> but you know what? To hell with Faulkner. Right. And this is why I have to tell you, I said that I, ha- I wasn't ready to write the, the historical novel. Now I'm ready and I'm writing it. And what it took was to release myself from that notion of what a writer needs to sound like. That sort of like very, I don't know, clenched, worried, did I say this right? In order to get at the heart of things, you got to kind of loosen up a bit. And the memoir allowed me to write with a free spirit. The historical novel that I'm working on currently is kind of a hybrid of, it's, it's an evolution of my voice. So now I can write something that's literary but truer to how I sound. Okay. Yeah. And you felt like it kind of filtered through the memoir and you kind of came out the other side, like almost like the two together. Yes, exactly. Okay. I 
I needed to just let go, let loose, just spill it out, just be myself, unashamed and open. And believe me, the memoir is unashamed and open. Um, and then once I had done that, once that was out, it granted me to write the way I, I, I want to write without fear of how good I sound. I mean, of course, we always want to sound good as writers, right. you know? Yeah. But, but to remember that there needs to be joy in the process. Did you have joy in writing the memoir? I had joy in writing the first book too. But yes, the memoir was an act of joy. Although the topics are really difficult. I mean, it deals with health conditions that I was going through. I had to have open heart surgery. It deals with 9-11. It deals with rape. You know, they're hard topics to discuss. But yeah, there was joy. Yeah. There was joy in writing about being so young and so joyous. It was almost like living it again. I was turning 40. So uh, it was wonderful to go back and try to understand her, you know, that 24-year-old. And she was, she was beautiful and crazy and alive and, you know, and I miss her. And this, this was a sort of um, mourning of her, but also a letting go of her yeah. and a opening up to me as I am now. That's so beautiful. I like, I'm interested to hear that you, do you, did you think about her as a character? Was she a her and not an I as you were writing? uh, You tell me, like when you look back at your 24 year old self, do you see her as you? No, I had to make her a she because I was the only way I could have compassion for that person. Yeah. And that's really a key thing to talk about, especially in writing about self is compassion. Yeah. We have so much guilt, resentment, anger, whatever, hurt, shame. And um, through writing this novel, I had to see her separate of myself. But then I realized that she is separate of who I am now. I'm, I'm not her anymore. I wish I was, kind of, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I feel the exact same way. I'm like, ooh. I wish I had that ass, but beyond that, I don't know. (laughs) And the energy and the sort of um, not jadedness and the hope and the whatever the hell it is, that grandiosity. There's a lot of grandiosity with being 24. You're not like you. You, the world is yours. It's like you can, there, there just feels like limitless possibilities, which is amazing, but also terrifying which, you know, can, can lock you up. And I think locks up a lot of people that are that young. Yeah. I reveled in it. I was in Iran. I tried to start a revolution with a watermelon. Oh my God. I love it. So when I'm looking for mentors for EV and I have people that are writing memoir, I have, I struggle to find people of color that are writing memoir. Do you think that that's an issue? Why do you think that is? I mean, gosh, that's, that's a, that's a good question. And how to answer it without sounding very, very angry. I'm fine with you being angry. I know, but you know, I don't think people want to hear our stories quite yet. I think they're heavy. Yeah. We want American dirt. We want American dirt because it's clean, you know? Yeah. Because it's fiction, because it's imagined, because it's romantic, you know? Mm-hmm. But to... To hear how people of color have suffered requires a reckoning of the self, especially if you hold a place of privilege. Mm -hmm. You can't read the voice of someone from Afghanistan talking about 
the siege of Afghanistan after 9-11, of what they, how they saw family members being killed by U.S. bombs. We can't read that and be okay with it, you know? We can't, we, we have to, we have to come to a reckoning with our role, and we have a role. I, I, in this situation, I, I am the American because I'm an American. So if I read a memoir by someone who, who lived through the, the war in Afghanistan, who's living through because it's not over yet, how am I going to swallow that guilt? How am I going to be okay with the blood on my hands? And is that marketable? Right. <laughs> I mean, our publishers, their bottom line is to sell. Who's going to come and buy a book that's going to make him feel like shit, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I am actually reading a book that 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 is like that's called, um, it's by that one writer that was on that one island off the coast of Australia that he, he was, he's actually an Iranian writer or Kurdish writer, I'm sorry. He, there's this prison island off the coast of Australia that they're putting all their immigrants on. And he wrote this like on his phone or something and. I don't know, WhatsApp or something, and he texted it out or sent it out to the world, and it became a book and won, like, the highest honor in Australia. But he couldn't actually go to receive that award because he's not allowed off the island where he's in prison because he was escaping war. How do we, how do we swallow that? Right. Yeah. I was going to say, it's so interesting for me because I feel like, you know, I come from a place of privilege and I'm, you know, I'm a white middle-aged Canadian lady, but I think, but I'm also an alcoholic and I've been in, I've been, uh, you know, in sobriety for seven years. And I, I think that for people to be able to swallow it, you have to be able to understand your part in situations and you have to be okay with that and understand everybody has a part in every situation. And I don't yeah. think most people have that kind of understanding unless they've gone through something. Exactly. And they don't want to. It's so much more comfortable to exist asleep. Right. To close your eyes to the suffering of the world. And I think we've been going through that for so long. This this vitriol, this anger to close the borders, to keep them out, keep them out. Because we can't bear it. Yeah. You know, maybe all that anger and that hatred toward immigrants is that we can't bear it. Right. To see them, to see them as human beings would devastate us. Right. But as you know, as I know, you know, writers, that devastation is absolutely necessary. We need to be devastated. We need to feel the depth of suffering, our own and others, to build compassion, to understand, to know. Yeah. And it makes for good writing. So what do we do? Like, what do we, how do we, like, I'm constantly as the, as the manager of the fellowship, constantly like scratching and clawing for recognition for writers like yourself. It's like, how do we get a lesser known writer in conversation with like an Alexander Chi or like, how do we, if this is what we're doing as an organization, how do we incorporate those writers in a meaningful way? And I feel like we fail a lot. And, and I'm wondering if you have any, like, like, what do you think we should do? What can we do? How do we get those stories out? Well, you're doing it right now. And I'm yeah. grateful. Thank you. Well, of course. You're, by inviting me to speak, you're allowing me to have a voice. And this is important. I don't, I don't take it for granted. But I'll, I'll tell you when, you, when you bring this up, I remember being a, a teacher, a high school teacher. I was working in inner city schools and one day I was meeting with this other teacher and she's like, 
you know, they talk about the system breaking down, meaning the school system, right? The public school system is, is a mess, right? She's like, but nobody realizes it's already broken. Right. We're like in the rubble and we have to make the best of it. I, I wonder, I don't, I don't know if we're in the rubble as writers of color, as women, you know, trying to get our voices out there. Maybe it's not rubble. Maybe we just need to build it. I don't, I don't know, Amanda, you know better than I. I, I don't know how to do it. I don't think I do. <laughs> I think that I just am like always throwing things at the wall and just seeing what sticks. But then I also wonder, do we need a complete collapse? Because we have to, like that's, we've, we've swung so far in the wrong direction that yeah. now like we have to swing that equal distance in the opposite direction to end up with some kind of equilibrium. You know, maybe if we just keep writing and talk louder and of course that puts it on us, you know, but. I and you're already like, like, I think that's so unfair. You're already exhausted. Well, yeah. And you're struggling and you're pushing and you're trying. And, but I guess, I don't, I don't know, this is cliche and maybe I'm wrong, but not to give up. Not to let the system break you down, to keep struggling and pushing because your story matters. Your story matters. It should be heard. It should be heard because there needs to be this sort of collection of voices saying we exist. You know, we're here. We've been here all along and you need to hear us because you are suffering too, because deep down, when deep down in your heart and your soul, you know that we're here. Mm. You know that we have stories and you know that you've been silencing us. If you let us speak, maybe we can build something together, like an understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Hattie, well, before we, before we met, uh, I emailed you like some, like, we could talk about whatever you want, but I'm wondering, I was like, do you have, I always like to, to give some kind of tool to the listeners. So I was like, yay, hey, do you, are there any uh, Iranian lover, uh, writers that you really love? And then I wonder, how do you feel about that? Like being the Iranian person being asked for Iranian writers, is that a pain in the ass? Do you like that? Do you wish that I just said writers like why does it have to be Iranian like how do you feel about that um yeah all of it yeah uh I, I think I see writers as a community in and of themselves so it's and I, this might make moot my point previously that we need more voices out there but I think a good writer gets to the essence of things sort of speaks the truth and any writer who's who has that capacity is my ethnicity. Oh, I like I that. That's good. So tell me who inspired you. So did you read while you were writing? Do you read while you're writing? And yeah. and who inspired you structurally, stylistically for the memoir? You know, R Roxane Gay's work has her courage in talking the way she does about her experience was pretty pivotal. You know, when I read her book, Hunger, Hunger, yeah, it it was like, okay, you can talk about this. That was that was pretty big. She's my ethnicity. <laughs> I love her. that. Yeah, you know, so yeah, there there was that. I read a, a ton of memoir. A lot of the memoir I was reading, and they were great. But you know, Cheryl Stray, Joan Didion, and I mean, she doesn't write memoir, but you know, nonfiction and like. The lady who wrote Hawk, which is beautiful, but yeah. like you get what I'm saying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Have you read Heavy? 
Uh, Caise Lehman. No. Do I need to? Oh my word. Yes, you do. <laughs> Don't even read it. Listen to it on Audible if you can. Why is she narrating? He it reads it and it oh. is a miracle of, it is the most gorgeous thing. And I read a lot of memoir and I think that you know when you know, like you said about Roxane Gay's. Um, you know, when you know that you're hearing this miraculous story, it is that and Chanel Miller know my name. Yes. Uh, oh my. Unbelievable. Okay. Both. Cause you know, I'm at home. There's <laughs> I'm not definitely, if you have time to read them, I would say both of those on audible because the both authors read them themselves and their voices are so on. I can't even, I just do it and then tell me what you think. I will. Yeah. I will order from a small independent bookstore. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> so tell me, like, what else do you want to talk about? Like, what do you want people to I, know? I, you you had mentioned in your notes about maybe what we talk about. You said, what, what advice do you have, you know? And also in your newsletter, you sent out, you know, this whole, you, you mentioned, how do we write right now? Yeah. Tell us. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> you write. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, look, Walt Whitman was like a, he actually volunteered in the Civil War just to be in it and just to see, just to experience. And didn't Hemingway, like, he was in the war too, wasn't he? Did I? That's I think that's like, right. I'm, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm stay away from the old white guys, but I think you're uh, right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we are living right now in such a crazy moment. Yeah. You can't take it. Like there's such sublimity to everything that you know, there everything is so absolutely exaggerated. This is fodder for writing. Right. This is like we should be inspired because this is inspiring, and not all inspiration is joyous and happy. Sometimes, <laughs> right, right. But like, how are you finding time? You have the kids at home. You have the dog. You have like, what are you doing? What's your schedule look like? Well, I I think if I cut sleep out of my routine, I am I'm, too old for that, girl. I am in bed by like ten p.m. at the latest. So, yeah, what else? I'm playing it day by day. Okay. Uh, for me, I'm playing it by day by day. But if you are unencumbered by kids and yeah. you do have the time, think of this as the joining the the genre, the the great prison writers. You know, like all those great writers who wrote in prison, whose names all escape me right now. Cervantes, he wrote in prison, right? Okay. Yeah, um, Don Quixote, and there's like a myriad of of writing that comes out of isolation right mary shelley i think wrote frankenstein when she was quarantined yeah that was oh, the one really? that i read yeah there you go yeah exactly. everybody get out there and write your frankenstein nothing like setting the bar high you know i mean i think what she had was this whole like you know what i'm just gonna do it right here's the other thing there's a scary virus out there and who knows if we have time. Right. Let's just live with the notion that maybe we don't have as much time as we thought. And why do I say that? Because if you realize that it's limited, that maybe time isn't eternal for you, then you put aside the fear and the, the uncertainty and you just do it because you have to, because there won't be any other time. It doesn't matter if it's shit. <laughs> right. I love that. I think that's a good place to end, but tell me if you have anything else. Like, I want you to say all the things that you want to say. 
I, I've, I've said them. Thank you. Thank you for Penn, Emerging Voices. Thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Thank you for your daily struggle in trying to get our voices out there. Your listeners can't see you, but you're beautiful and you have a great smile. Oh, so thank you. you too. <laughs> I'm just like so thrilled that we got to meet because I really do feel like not having an MFA, like I feel like we see these writers that are so tight because they went to like some MFA program in like the middle of nowhere and then they 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 got so connected and now they're helping each other in their careers. And I want that for Emerging Voices. But also I think that like you said, people have children and they're married and now everyone also has a job and like nobody is privileged in the way where they're just writing for a living generally because yeah. you're already fighting for your piece of the pie, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You got to want that pie real bad. Yeah. So Home as a Stranger is out March 24th. What else do you have coming up? I know like all your events have been canceled, but like what else? We need no. to buy the book. <laughs> yeah. Nothing else. Okay. Nothing. Um, I the, everything is canceled. Every festival, every book reading, everything. All right. Well, we're thrilled to talk to you, and we're gonna make sure that we buy at least ten. There's 150 emerging voices. If we can't purchase ten books, that is a huge problem. You know, and this is me pleading so that I can send my children to college. If you can share, you know, with your connections and tell people, I would be grateful. Amazing. I'll, you know, buy a book, write a review, um, invite Parnas to speak virtually. That would also be amazing. So lovely to meet you. So lovely to see your face. I'm so excited to read the book and I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you so much. All right, honey. Bye. Bye. Pen America champions the freedom to write and believes that freedom of expression and literature are inseparable. Visit pen.org to learn more about what we do. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join us. Be a part of the larger conversation. Support for EV comes from sources both big and small. Serious financial support comes from organizations like the Amazon Literary Partnership, California Arts Council, New Balloon and Catapult, Los Angeles County Arts Commission, the Ovation Foundation, Pasadena Literary Alliance, the Rosenthal Family Foundation, and UCLA Extension Writers Program. And let's not forget individuals like Jamie and David Wolf. We appreciate you. To the Emerging Voices themselves, this podcast is in support of everything you do and everything you've accomplished. Congratulations. We celebrate you. Thanks to 2012 EV Johnny Alfie for giving us our theme song, Linen, from his band, Tony and Johnny. And to the members of the Los Angeles literary community who have been showing up for us for more than 20 years, donating their time as mentors, committee members, author evening hosts, and masterclass instructors, I have leaned on each and every one of you for advice, and I appreciate you. You've been there to answer my questions, those of the fellows, as well as the questions of prospective applicants. You've written letters of recommendation, introductions, outreach essays, and blog posts. You've encouraged EVs to read at your events and said yes when we've asked you to read at ours. And to Dave Thomas, everything we know about public speaking, we learned from you. This is all just to say, thanks LA, sincerely. <laughs>